Software engineers have a wide variety of media to choose from, including podcasts, blogs, YouTube videos, and conferences. The amount of software engineering media that is available is growing and accelerating. Eight years ago, there were not as many options for information about software. Charles Max Wood founded devchat.tv to create a network of podcasts and other content for software engineers. Today, his podcasts include the popular shows JavaScript Jabber, Ruby Rogues, and Adventures in Angular. Chuck joins the show for a conversation about software media. This was his second time on the show, with his first episode exploring his podcast, JavaScript Jabber. Charles Max Wood, welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Hey, thanks. We last spoke three years ago-ish, and we talked in that episode about the software media landscape and software podcasting. How has the world of software engineering media changed since you started devchat.tv? <laughs> That's kind of an interesting topic. I think in a lot of ways, it, I think it's become more ubiquitous. So essentially, what, what you see is uh, more people on YouTube, more people on uh, you know, putting out podcasts, though I have been actually going and looking to see what is out there in the world of podcasts for software. And I am still surprised by how few there are out there. But yeah, Twitch streaming's becoming kind of a thing. A lot more people are putting out courses, the training environment, so paid media has changed. So you see a lot more uh, plural sites and other companies coming out. I have a friend that's restarting one called Thinkster.io. And so yeah, a lot more movement out there, a lot more people doing what you would consider media. And then the other thing that I'm seeing a lot more of is in social media, just the general use of videos and things like that. A lot more programmers are getting into sharing media type things on Twitter, Facebook, Facebook Lives, for example, Instagram and Instagram TV, IGTV, I think is what they call it. And so you see a lot more movement that way too. Do you see a dividing line between user-generated content, user-generated software media, and more professional software journalism, perhaps? Do you see a dividing line there, or is it, is it are, they, are these just in the same area? Well, it's interesting because traditionally there's been this divide between quote-unquote journalism and sort of the, the masses doing blogging and things like that. I don't know that software itself has ever enjoyed traditional journalism in the same way. I mean, there are definitely companies out there that are professional companies that cover technology in the news, cover things like programming in the news. And so you see things about programming communities or programming companies or programming training companies that come out in the news. But for the most part, I, I think those things tend to blend. And I think... In general, in our news media today, we're going to see more and more of that blending, not just in technology, but everywhere. So, you know, the, what, independent or non-professional journalism, I think we're going to see more and more of that in areas like politics and lifestyle and all of those other things. I mean, we already see companies essentially coming out and creating media around things like politics or going on YouTube and having a show or having a podcast about 
politics or you know whatever other topic politics is just the one that keeps coming up because it's the one that the traditional news media tends to come back to over and over again but we're going to see more and more people getting their coverage from other folks and eventually i think the line is going to blur i don't think there's more of a distinction i think there's less of one i sometimes think about what you get out of the monolithic journalism institution and you get copy editors you get Mm -hmm. second opinions on the content that you're producing you get Mm -hmm. maybe some improved production quality perhaps but many of those things you can get without the esteemed institution what are the defensible characteristics of these esteemed media institutions? Well, the things you all listed, I would contend are things that people don't necessarily care about. I mean, as long as your quality is good enough and the information that they're getting out of it is valuable or reliable or whatever they want from it, it matters a whole lot less whether or not you have those things. The thing that you tend to get out of the traditional media that will add some value to your broadcast or message is the media channel tends to have some overarching idea or theme. And so it can lend credibility to you from other people who are part of that journalism network. But beyond that, I mean, people are looking for things that are real, things that are genuine and things that they can rely on or be entertained by in certain ways. And you don't necessarily need traditional journalism for those things. What's the difference between podcasting and journalism? I think a lot of that really depends on how you define journalism. In a lot of cases, I don't think there really is a major difference depending on the podcast, I guess. Because some podcasts are just out there to entertain, right? They're not covering any news or whatever. They're just telling a story or, you know, telling jokes or things like that, right? So that I don't consider journalism. It's entertainment. But the ones that actually talk about real stuff, you know, so for example, on our shows, we talk about things that are going on in the programming communities. I don't see that there necessarily is a definable difference between journalism in our space and a podcast, A podcast is just one way of doing journalism. Mm. In the world of software engineering journalism, or software engineering podcasting, whatever it is that we are doing, do you need to write code to be effective at what you do? (laughs) That, that, That feels a little bit, how do I put it? I feel a little bit like you kind of set me up to confess some things. And I'll go ahead and confess them. I'll preempt you. I don't write much code at all. Yeah, and, and I'm kind of in the same boat these days. I mean, I'm working on a system for podcasters that will manage a whole bunch of stuff for them in their production process and sponsorships. But at the end of the day, that's probably less than a tenth of what I do every week. So when I started iFreaks, I wanted to learn how to do iOS development, right? And so I got a bunch of other folks that I knew knew how to do it. And we started doing a show, and I was on the panel for like three years. I still don't know how to write <laughs> iOS apps in Swift or Objective-C. So in that sense, I mean, people were getting value out of it, but they were getting value out of some of the experience of some of the other people on the show. And so I guess you don't, but on the flip side, you have to be able to talk about it in a way that provides value to people. 
And so if you lack a certain level of expertise, then the people that you can help is going to be limited somewhat. Where if you do have the expertise, then you can grow into that, so to speak. But you can also borrow other people's expertise. I mean, you having guests on your podcast like you're doing and like we often do, I don't have to be an expert. I just have to know enough to be able to help the other person explain the stuff that's going to be valuable to the people who are listening. And so I have to be somewhat conversant in it, but I don't have to be an expert in it. You have the panel format for some of your conversations. And for other conversations, you have one-on-one interviews. Mm -hmm. How does the utility of the panel format compare to the one-on-one interview format? So the thing we shoot for with the panel, and I think this is something that a lot of people identify with, if you go to a conference or a user's group or some other in-person meetup, most of the time you're not having one-on-one interactions with any given person at the conference. I mean, sometimes you are. Sometimes you'll sit down next to somebody and you'll wind up chatting with them. But for the most part, you know, somebody else walk in, come along and go, oh, hey, how's it going? You know, they know them or they know you. And then you have three people in the conversation or four people in the conversation. You know, you go to dinner after the conference and you have that conversation there or you have a bunch of coworkers that you work with that you get along with that you just have kind of have a conversation amongst the four or five of you. And that's kind of what we're aiming for with the panel discussion, right? I mean, we are specifically talking about a specific topic. Sometimes it kind of leans a little bit more interview-ish because only one or two of us have real expertise besides the guest that we have on the show. And sometimes we just have people on like David Heinemeyer Hansen or Brendan Eich where we just want to let them shine. It's like, you know what? I'm just going to shut up and hear what he has to say. And then I'll ask my question and then I'm going to shut up and hear what he has to say. And so you kind of get that a little bit. But for the most part, that's kind of what we're looking for. And the other thing is, is if you have a panel of, you know, we usually shoot for four or five people from the panel and then maybe a guest on the shows. What that does is it allows several people to share their stories and experiences. Often you get a counterpoint from somebody, right? So in one episode, we were talking about how the framework mentality is ruining the web, right? And so Chris Ferdinandi was kind of the impetus for that. He mentioned it to me a couple of times, and I said, we need to talk about this on the podcast, right? And so people had different takes on the same idea. And so he got in and he said, well, my experience is, and then he kind of explained not only what his theory was, but also what he had run into and what he had seen. And then, you know, we had a few other people on the call who had used frameworks and gotten a lot out of them. And so we kind of worked our way through the issue, right? And so we kind of got a couple of opinions there. But yeah, so sometimes everybody agrees, but we all agree for reasons, right? And so what happens is somebody like uh, maybe Amy Knight on JavaScript Jabber, you know, she'll say, well, I was playing with this particular technology and I really thought that this and this and this really shined. And then somebody else said, yeah, we converted an app from jQuery to that framework or to that tool. And it turned out that it also solved these other problems for us. And so you get different perspectives on why something is useful or handy or important without actually necessarily everybody agreeing on why they agree on that particular thing. And so you just get this breadth of experience and knowledge about a specific thing. And that also often pays off. How has the podcast advertising market changed over the last three years? So I'm trying to think about where in my journey three years was because 
Ruby Rogue started eight years ago. Before that, I had another show that I ran for a couple of years. When we started eight years ago, a lot of folks just sponsored us because they thought podcasts were cool. They were excited to see a podcast like ours in the Ruby space or JavaScript space. And so they just, you know, they just gave us money, right? And it was essentially very much more like a sponsorship and very much less like an advertisement deal. That's changed some. A lot more people understand what a podcast is now than they did eight years ago or even three years ago. And that changes the landscape some too, because then instead of explaining, hey, this is our show, go check it out. This is how we distribute it, et cetera, et cetera. We don't have to do any of that work anymore. We just say, hey, we have a podcast. We talk about these topics. We reach these kinds of people. And then they figure that in as to how they think they can get an ROI from it. The other thing that's changed, there are a couple of other things that have come along. One is, is that the big players have started to get more involved. I mean, some like NPRs had their stuff on podcasts for a long, long time, but a lot of the other uh, media companies have now come out and started putting their stuff onto podcasts. And so a lot more traditional media has been aware of podcasting and that means that their advertisers are as well. And so there's been a little bit of a movement that way as far as traditional media advertisers being willing to support podcasts. In niche areas like ours, where we're talking about software, I mean, the pool is different, right? Because it's companies that want to reach developers and offer them tools or things that are going to help make their workflows easier or their lives better in some way. And so that's a different thing. And that that market has changed some in the sense that they also are more aware of podcasts. A lot of them have tried sponsoring podcasts in the past. A lot of them understand some of the payoff of being involved in this kind of media where they weren't really looking at traditional media like TV or radio because it didn't make sense for a general audience, but it makes sense to get in on a niche audience. The other thing is, is that a lot of things are moving back and forth between things like YouTube or Facebook or, you know, some of these other things. And so that market has changed too, because we're competing with different types of advertising opportunities. And so anyway, it it all comes down to basically that level of awareness and what people are able to do with it. I think more companies are more willing to consider sponsoring podcasts than they were in the past because they don't have to be sold on the value of podcasts anymore. But yeah, uh, other than that, I, I think materially the rates have gone up some. I think they're going to continue to to rise as podcasts become more of influencer or um, it, it's, it's essentially influencer marketing, right? So it's not just, hey, we're going to put your ad in the middle of our show but we're going to actually endorse your product, right? Or we're going to give a testimonial of your product. And so I run into that too, where essentially I wind up, you know, I'll I'll get a sponsorship from a company I like. And part of the deal is, is that I actually mention their show in the show as a sponsor, but then I actually tell people, oh, this is why I like it, right? This is why I care about this product. And so it adds that value that you don't get from some of the other media And so some of the companies are also looking at that. The last thing I think has changed over the last few years is that people are more aware of how to do sponsorship on podcasts. And so often what they'll do is they'll talk to the sponsors and they'll actually work out a deal where they do a mix of in podcast advertising, plus a banner on the website, plus mentioned in the newsletter, plus, you know, whatever, maybe YouTube or some other channel that they have as well, you know, social media. And so they're getting kind of this package deal with their influencer marketing. That changes the equation some as well because it's more personal 
in a way. With the podcast ad sales market, there's always this question about metrics. So mm-hmm. the way that podcast players work is you can download, you can listen, and those are basically right. the same thing on the analytics back end. But the problem is that many people download tons of podcasts and then listen to maybe a fifth of them. And the podcast players don't report back to the analytics backend, with the exception of Apple Podcasts and maybe a few other podcast players, perhaps. And on the other hand, on YouTube, you have deep analytics. And some people mm-hmm. republish their podcasts to YouTube. I think you're in that category. I think I saw you tweeting about republish.io or whatever. Like, I've reused repurpose. that one. Repurpose. Yeah, repurpose. Pretty, pretty, good, pretty good tool. For anybody who's looking to republish their podcasts onto YouTube, that's a pretty good tool, repurpose. Yep. But, and then there's also like the subscribers number, which is a really dubious number because that varies from <laughs> podcast player to podcast player. So the thing is, what makes this really tricky is that you're often selling to an advertiser who has never bought a podcast ad before. And they say, okay, how many listeners do you have? And you're like, well, I don't... I can't really give you like an honest answer. Like I can tell you how many downloads there are. I can guess at how many subscribers there are. I can guess at how many monthly uniques we have. But really, the only thing mm-hmm. I can tell you is how many unique downloads for a given episode there are. And right. like maybe it's in the tens of thousands. And they're like, really? Only tens of thousands? I can go to YouTube and get hundreds of thousands. I can go to some written content site and get hundreds of thousands or millions. Why on earth would I go with you? And... You know, there's so many arguments, you know, you can make for them like, well, you know, first of all, this is long form content as opposed to a lot of the other, you know, platforms. It's short form content. Mm-hmm. And you can make the argument. And and also, you know, there's plenty of bots that are surveying these other uh, these other content sites. And, you know, maybe there are bots downloading podcasts, but it seems less relevant. Maybe there are. Maybe they're downloading the podcast, doing transcription or something. But in any case, it's such a hard sales process still and for me personally it's taught me a lot about how sales works where in many cases i think and and i've seen this in other like talking to to other software products you don't close a sale sadly in many cases by illustrating why this product is worth something you close a sale by saying these 10 other people have used this product and they were happy with it. Yeah, I mean, there's some of that. It really depends. I do work off the case study example, so to speak, a bit, right? These people have had this payoff in this way. It, it is as tricky. The, the analytics going back to that point, and boy, I could rant on this, right? You know, how do you measure a listen? Well, yeah, I think Apple Podcasts and NPR One are the only two apps that I can think of that actually track how far in people got, right? Or where they stopped and where they picked up again. And so that's hard, right? Spotify gives you some stats too, but their stats are essentially who started playing it and who got more than 60 seconds in, right? And so you can go look at that and you can get some idea of, you know, what percentage of people are, you know, even listening a minute in, which I don't necessarily find as helpful because... I mean, the the content for us anyway, on our shows, we do intros first. So 
they're going to hear us introducing ourselves. And if they can't get past that, well, it wasn't anything that necessarily turned them off, I guess. Maybe it was just that there wasn't anything that got them excited, which it did make me rethink a few things. You know, maybe we should put in a quick intro that says, hey, in this episode, we're going to talk about blah, blah, blah. But, and I was just looking at those stats yesterday, which is why if you listen to our shows, you probably haven't heard us change anything yet. But anyway, yeah, the, the analytics are not great. And then the other thing is, is that you've got companies like Libsyn and Blueberry and some of these other companies that are involved in the National Association of Broadcasters standard for measuring podcast traffic that they keep changing the rules as far as what they deem to be a duplicate download, right? So some podcast apps, they come in and they make six requests starting at different places within the file so that they can, you know, download simultaneously and get it faster. Or, you know, somebody starts downloading at home and then, you know, they go get in their car and their IP address changes. So how do you track that? And so, yeah, the the analytics numbers are really tough. And then As you said, there's no real good way of knowing how many people are actually listening to the episode at all or if they're dropping off at a certain point or things like that. And so, yeah, Um, and and I give caveats about that up front, right? Uh, You know, and, and basically what I say is to the best of our knowledge, this is how many people listen. This is how we're kind of figuring that out. And, you know, we could be wrong. And most of the time, most marketing people, that's about the level of detail that they want, right? And so then they can take that number, they can adjust it if they, you know, if they feel like, you know, what you're calculating isn't exactly spot on, and then they can make a decision based on what they think they're going to get out of it. But the other thing is, is I also tell them, I'm like, look, I recommend you sponsor four or five episodes, and then we can get back together and we can talk about what's working and what's not working and what numbers you're seeing on your end as far as uh, how many click-throughs you're getting and and how many people are buying and what the ROI has been and see if we can make it work for you. And I really try and work with sponsors. And I think this is the real difference between just saying, you know what, you know, I'm going to sell you the ad space. Hopefully it works for you, you know, and then we're done is that a lot of these folks, if you come to them and say, look, if it really doesn't work for you, I'll work with you to a certain extent. So, you know, if it's working, we can look at it and see what we can do to make it better If it's close, we can look at it and see what we can do to make it work. And then if it just completely tanks, then, you know, maybe we try something different. I'll usually work things out and give them a deal on the trying something different, right? Because I want to make sure that they're getting an ROI if I can make it work. And then, you know, if if it just uh, bombs and then bombs again, you know, then it's essentially like, look, you know, we did the best we can. Maybe the market's just not ready for your particular solution. But the other thing is, is that... I also tend not to take companies. I've had several sponsors come to me or potential sponsors come to me and tell me they wanted a sponsor and I either didn't like, didn't know enough about, or, you know, didn't think it was a good match for my audience. And so I just basically told them no, right? I'll only take stuff that I feel good promoting on the shows. And so that that's also a thing to keep in mind is that I feel like if you keep the sponsor quality high, then the ROI tends to follow a little more naturally because people trust what you're putting out there. And so there's a lot that goes into it, but ultimately I get, I don't give them a guarantee per se, but I definitely make it clear that I'm willing to work with them to make sure that they're getting a good ROI. And then I I also just explain the whole process It's like, look, this is what we do. This is how we do it. Of course, the other thing is, is a lot of times I also tell them, look, if we do the ad in the podcast, you're going to get a certain level of engagement 
if we add on social media and email newsletters, then you're going to get a lot more engagement because they're going to get exposed to it different ways at different times. And then when it shows up in their inbox and they're more likely to click, and sometimes they take me up on that and sometimes they don't. But all in all, it's really just a matter of trying to make sure that they understand what the process looks like, understand how the ROI actually works, help them figure out how to track it, and then be willing to work with them on the back end to make sure that everything comes through for them. Because I don't want to sell a bad product. And in this case, you know, it's the podcast sponsorship that's the product, you know, the exposure to the audience. And so, again, you know, if it doesn't work for them, then, you know, I want to make it as good an experience as possible. And so that's what I do. Last time we spoke, you were excited about voice interfaces. That was three years ago. How have your views on the intersection of voice and podcasting been updated? I'm not sure exactly what you're talking about there. Well, we, I remember we were talking about Alexa and, uh, you know, oh yeah, just voice interfaces. And I think a lot of people were excited about voice interfaces and also about chatbots and many other things three years ago. Today, it looks like voice interfaces and podcasts are still fairly separate categories. I mean, it was fair mm-hmm. to say that, you know, back then people were starting to get excited about podcasts. People were getting very excited about voice interfaces. It seems that both of these spaces have advanced more slowly and in their own lanes. They haven't really blended with each other. So, I mean, do you have any, do you have any perspective on, on those two? Like, are we going to see overlap or do you just think these are totally disjoint segments at this point? Yeah. I mean, something may come about that makes it really click for people. I was super bullish on it. I thought everybody was going to get an Amazon Echo and then basically get their daily briefs. And so you could give a one to two minute segment of your show and then people would go, oh, I want to listen to that. But there are a couple of things that didn't really come about with that. One is, is I don't think as many people do that as I thought. I mean, it's convenient, right? Because you brush your teeth, you just walk in, tell it to give you a daily brief and then start brushing. But that turns out not to the way that people are getting their news. The other thing is, is that it has been a non-trivial thing at this point to get your shows onto things like the Amazon Echo or the Google. Um, it's not necessarily an easy thing. I mean, at this point, you can go on. I think it's TuneIn Radio, and if you put your show on there, then it'll, you know, then you can tell the Echo to play it, right? So tell it keyword, go play Ruby Rogues, and it'll play it. But yeah, it's just it's not a super clean interface. And the other thing is, is that if there's like an episodic feature to it, like this show and my shows, the other issue that you run into is that you don't just want to tell it to play Ruby Rogues. You want it to tell it to play the latest Ruby Rogues. Or if you know that there was an interview within the last few weeks with somebody you wanted to hear from, then you have to figure out how to tell the device to find the right episode and play it. And I mean, my kids, they struggle with having the Echo play the right song that they want sometimes because they only know a few of the words of the song or things like that. Or there's something else that's named similarly enough to where it plays that instead. And so the interface, even though it's really nice for a lot of things, it's a little bit clunky with this because it's not well understood exactly how people expect it to work. What was your perception of the Spotify acquisitions of Gimlet Media and Anchor? Now that's interesting. That was something that people were talking about quite a bit at PodFest this year. And oh, you went to Podfest. I did. Were you there? Did I, I miss you I there? did not go. I've never been to a podcast conference. Oh, you should try it. I really want to go. 
I really want to go to a podcast conference. Yeah, I hear this really handsome guy is going to be one of the sponsors of Podcast Movement this year. Really handsome but, guy. Yeah, somebody I know. I'm, I'm super close to him. I wear his clothes, actually. <laughs> You're going to sponsor the conference? Yes. Interesting. For so, That's for your podcasting product? Yeah. Cool. Yep. Is, is that but, like a, that's a podcast host and monetization tool? Yes. Okay. Interesting. Well, maybe you can tell me about your perspective on Spotify, and then you can tell me about your perspective on podcast tooling. Right. So they bought two properties. They bought Gimlet Media, which is Alex Bloomberg and a bunch of those folks that came off of uh, This American Life. They have a bunch of shows. You can go check them out. They have a lot of good shows. Anyway, Spotify bought them, and then they also bought Anchor.fm. Now, I'm going to go with the one that I don't know much about because I just, I can get it out of the way fast. I have no idea why they bought Anchor.fm. I can speculate some things, but I don't think any of them are slam dunk, right? It's not obvious to me that any of those would be the reason why they did it. So yeah, I mean, the best thing that I can think of for Anchor.fm is that they essentially wanted a platform for people to be able to submit content to spotify automatically but they have the podcasters portal up and it's pretty easy to use anyway and so even that doesn't really connect for me Hmm. as for gimlet media i think what they were looking at there and i don't think they're wrong i think they might be a little bit early but i don't think they're wrong is that people are moving more and more and more to the sort of original content so spotify is sort of like netflix for music essentially, right? You go and you listen to other people's music who they've licensed Spotify to go and use. And so you can go listen on, listen to it for free and then you listen to the ads or you can pay to get rid of the ads. You kind of get the idea there. But you're seeing a lot of these other companies like Netflix and Audible and Hulu, Amazon, they're all doing original content. And the thing that really pays off in audio if you're going to do original content in my opinion, is storytelling, and Gimlet is really, really good at it. And so by picking up folks who did This American Life and are now doing all of the stuff that Gimlet was doing, you can let them continue to produce their podcasts. Can you know They're already profitable, as far as I know anyway. So you know they're not a cost center for you, but then you can have them use their expertise to create original content for you. And I think that is where it's going to shine. And so then you're going to have original content on Spotify. You can already get original content off of Audible. You can get original content maybe on some of these other places. And I think that's the play that they made there. And I think it's a brilliant move. I think they're moving first on this to kind of cement themselves as the free streaming service. And it's interesting too, because they weren't the first to market. You know, you had Pandora and a bunch of these other ones. But Spotify really figured out what the recipe was to make it successful. And then I think they started to stagnate. You know, people kind of got used to who they were and what they were about. And they realized that they could be disrupted because anybody else can come in now and copy their recipe. And so by having original content, it it makes them more sticky. All right. I agree with most of that assessment. So your perspective on building products to help podcasters monetize or what what exactly are you building 
So it's it's interesting how this all came about. So initially, when I started building it, by the way, you can go check it out at podwrench.com. Um, Podwrench. W-R-E-N-C-H. Yep. You can't sign up for it yet. <laughs> we're working on that. But we're using it right now for devchat.tv. And, you know, once I get it to the point where uh, we've run into a few snags. And so I can go in and kind of programmatically on the back end massage stuff to where I want it. But other people can't do that. I don't want to have to support them to that level yet. So anyway, initially I was just building a system that would allow me to keep track of all this stuff. So what I wanted was I wanted a system that uh, there are kind of two parts to it. So one is the content creation part. So I wanted something where I could keep track of the schedule of podcasts. And as we grow the network, this is becoming more and more of an issue. So, you know, we can schedule the podcast and make sure that all of the resources that the podcast need are available. And then once the recordings are scheduled, you know, provide the hosts with information they can use to prepare for the episode. That's usually provided by a guest or if not, you know, if there's no guest and it's just a topic we're discussing, then we can kind of have a preliminary, okay, these are my, you know, thoughts here. And then, you know, we can kind of work through that as, as a team. Okay. Well, what about this? What about that? What about this? And that way we can have thought it through a little bit before we actually get on the show and still have kind of a free form conversation about it. But yeah, so then there's the prep information. And then once it's prepped, then I wanted essentially a screen for the host to be able to go to, to look at the prep information, see who the sponsors are for the show. I'd like to get to the point where I can offer live ad reads. And so then whoever's running the show, essentially, you know, they would just get prompted periodically to do an ad. And then once it's done, then they either upload the episode or, you know, in some way the the editor would be informed that it's done and maybe they just know where to go, right? So we're using Zoom and it records to the cloud. So, you know, they would just know, go log into Zoom and get it. Or we'd have somebody else who would go into Zoom and upload it to this app. And then the editor, you know, it's just an all-in-one interface. They just download it. They go do their editing however they do it, you know, with Audition or Audacity or whatever. And then they just re-upload it. As soon as it's re-uploaded, then it notifies the show notes people. The show notes people come in and write the show notes. And that one they would just do right in the app with a WYSIWYG editor. And then when they are done, then it would schedule it to be released to the website. And so we would use WordPress APIs or I'm moving devchat.tv over to a statically generated site. And so, you know, it would just basically upload a, a markdown file with all of the information in it and then it's done, right? So then it's just ready to go. And then once it's released, then it would notify somebody on the team to go do all the social media stuff. Well, and then on the other, what was that? Oh, no, go ahead. On the sponsor, I was just going to talk about the sponsorship side for next, but if you have feedback or thoughts, I'm, I'm happy to hear them. Well, what I was going to say is I, I mean, where we are on the same page and, um, you know, this is, I think this is something where it's like a problem that would only be identified by software engineering podcasters, basically. You know, you look <laughs> at fair. the infrastructure for software engineering and you look at the infrastructure for podcasting and you just say to yourself, what on earth are we doing? What, what, what is this? We're, we upload an audio file to one place. We put it on WordPress, except WordPress isn't made for podcasts. There's nothing right. that was made for podcasts. We put it on a statically generated site, whatever. It gets turned into an RSS feed. 
there's just like the whole sub- and then you know there's no not a good way to do dynamic ad insertion there's all these proprietary platforms that take way too much margin for in exchange yeah. for their dynamic ad insertion services the whole ecosystem is just i mean it, it's kind of a collective action problem where you have podcasters you have the people building the podcast infrastructure you have the people building open source software you have people selling ads you have the people selling the dynamic ad insertion technology you have the people selling the analytics technology and mm-hmm. it's like the reason the podcast industry feels completely static relative to something like YouTube is because it is this carnival of different players. It's like, yeah. you know, you can't orchestrate the entire carnival to, you know, work together like a musical, you know, like a mm-hmm. single orchestrated musical because it's a carnival. You know, yeah. YouTube... That's a good way to put it. You know, YouTube is more like the musical. Like YouTube is it's centrally orchestrated... You know, so it just advances. But then you have the problems of the central orchestrator, where Mm -hmm. because you have the central orchestrator, you have somebody to blame. And so you get these kind of centralization problems where you have creators saying, hey, I'm you know, i not getting monetized on YouTube. Why is that? And YouTube says, well, your content wasn't you know, up to snuff or whatever. And then they say, right. well, but my content's fine. And then YouTube says, yeah, actually, it was, our, it was our algorithms and our centralized oversight committee. And like, well, okay, that's kind of a problem too. But there must be some middle ground that is better than the status quo for what we have of podcasting technology. Right. Yeah. And that, that's kind of where I was aiming to get is Essentially, you know, you can go manage your accounts on iTunes and whatever, you know, which is kind of the the central authority, so to speak. But as far as just building the content, that's what I wanted. And then, you know, very similar on the sponsorship side, I wanted something where I could essentially keep track of current sponsors. I could keep track of potential sponsors and my sponsors could actually go in. So instead of emailing me and saying, hey, we want to update our banner or update what you said on the show or whatever... And then I have to go remember to upload it to, you know, WordPress or, you know, whatever, or go record the new thing. You know, I would just have a system where it's like, hey, they updated the talking points or the ad script for the podcast. And so it would just prompt me until I, you know, essentially said, okay, I've done it. And if they uploaded a new banner, it would just update the banner, right? They could just upload it to the web instead of uploading it to their email client. And so there was a lot of stuff there, but then... Ultimately, where I wound up at this year was I was talking to a few people, Johnny Wynn from uh, Elixir Fountain, which hasn't produced a show in a while, and a few other people who had shows that quit. And I was talking to them, and I realized that a lot of these folks, what happens is is they get in because they want to make the content. And they love doing the content, right? They love recording. They love talking to people. But then it's like, okay, well writing the, you know, pulling together the editing and everything like that is a pain. And I either can't afford it or I can't afford it because I don't have time to or know how to find sponsors. So then I do it myself, but I don't actually have time for that either. And I feel like it's kind of a shame that these shows are shutting down because they don't have the resources to keep rolling. And so ultimately what my offering is going to be is, or at least the main offering will be, I mean, you can use it for your own team. If you have your own production team, you know, just come in, plug it in, pay for it, you know, and it's just going to be a flat monthly fee. If you're, you know, but if you're one of these shows, then what I want to do is I want to set it up so that it's like, look, we'll go find your sponsors. We'll use the sponsorship money to pay a production team for you. And then, you know, we'll split the rest of it. You know, if there's any money left over after that, we'll split it. 
And that way it gets all of the production headaches out of the way. It gets all of the funding headaches out of the way. It gets all of the, how do I pay these people issues out of the way. And as long as you're producing content and you'll allow us to help you find sponsors and do the production for you, then we'll just get it done. Interesting. So you're thinking of like a, it's almost like a capital, it's like you're, you're issuing kind of a loan to these uh, like podcasters to get them off the ground. And then in return, they kind of let you handle the podcast monetization side of things. Yeah. It's an interesting model. I mean, I, what, what I like about it is there should be way more podcasters. Like, it's... I get to... I, I so much agree with that. I, I, like, <laughs> I can't I, even tell you. I so much agree with that. I mean, I'm just shocked. People still perceive podcasting as hard. And it's yeah. just not... Of course, there's things that are that you can get infinitely better at. That's why I love it. It's like every day I'm just like, okay, I did a terrible job in this interview. What can I do better? How can, and it's the art of conversation. How do you get better mm-hmm. at having a conversation? And so you can never max out at how good you can get at a conversation. Now that said, like how hard is it to get to level zero of podcasting? It's just not hard. I mean, how hard is it nope. to start a blog? It's very simple. But people don't really see that. And because... I mean, first of all, it probably used to be a lot. It, it used to be harder. I mean, the you know we're using Zencaster right now. This is a great. You know, I love Zencaster. It's maybe better than Skype. You know, we, we haven't had Skype for too long. But anyway, I'm a fan of the idea of more people having podcasts. I still get to podcast inbox zero. I know a lot of other people don't have this experience, but I still run out of podcasts that I'm happy to listen to. I don't know quite why that is. It seems like I should have infinite like, good podcasts that I want to listen to. I don't, I don't think I have that problem with YouTube. Like, I never run out of good YouTube content. I don't know. Do you run out of good podcasts to listen to, or do you, you know, do you feel like you're just infinitely deluged? So, it's funny because what I tend to do on my listening habits, but hang on, I, I want to go back to the, there should be more podcasters out there. Sure. So, I was at NGConf this year. That's the Angular conference. It's in Salt Lake. And I live, like, a half hour from Salt Lake. So, you know, I just drove up every day. Of course, I also drove up every day by virtue of the fact that I had to take my kids with me to the conference every day. But they had a kid's track, so that worked out. And anyway, I was talking to a bunch of people, and I realized that there were a handful of communities, you know, are related to Angular, where they didn't really have podcasts. You know, there isn't good content out there for them. I also talked to some people who especially like Java, so the .NET community has .NET Rocks, and they've been around for a while. And, you know, there are a bunch of other podcasts around the Microsoft ecosystem. But I was talking to some Java developers, and they were complaining that there wasn't a podcast out there that they really liked, and that there wasn't great content out there for them that would help them stay current. And I was going, Java? Really? Because there are still a zillion Java developers out there. And I'm sitting there going, why doesn't every freaking community have a podcast? And that's when it hit me. And so devchat.tv's uh, mission before April, which is when, or May, when ng-conf was, was to help software developers liberate themselves and, and build the career and software that's going to make a difference in the world. And now our mission is to make sure that every programming community has a podcast. And it's just because it is. It's insane. These people need some content that's going to help them get where they want to go. I actually talked to some people who started a Cold Fusion podcast. And I'm like, great, you know, there's content <laughs> out there yeah. for these folks, right? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it's just, it, it drives me absolutely crazy that there are people out there that are trying to do better and learn, 
and that there's nothing out there for them. I mean, that to me is wrong. And so that's what we're after these days is just getting that content out there for these folks. And so anyway, so I completely agree with you that there should be more podcasters out there. And the other thing is, is yeah, people kind of have this idea that podcasting is like radio. And so you need studio level, blah, blah, blah stuff. I don't even know. But ultimately what you need is you go on Fiverr and you pay somebody to make some artwork for you. And then you get a microphone. It doesn't even have to be a great one. It just has to be a decent one. You know, so you spend, you can spend 30 bucks and get a decent mic. You can get, spend 60 bucks and get a nice mic. You can spend $300 and get a professional mic. But, you know, get a decent mic, plug it into your machine. If you have like AirPods or, you know, the Apple ear headphones, I mean, those mics are decent. Just make sure they're not rubbing on your shirt. But then do a show. Just talk. I mean, that's it podcast done right put some intro music on it if you really want to get fancy but that's all there is to it to get started and yeah so i'm just like why aren't more people out there talking about this stuff Hmm. agreed and i I forgot what i derailed off of (laughs) no no um, it it doesn't matter you know i want to ask you about because we are observants and participants in the world of software media did you see this stuff about medium and free code camp and the practical dev do you know what i'm talking about did you see that i think i heard something about it but just in very very general details i don't know much beyond that okay all right well we we don't need to discuss it i, I guess um was basi- now i'm curious well <laughs> so it was basically so free code camp had a medium blog that yes, people could, they've had one for a long time. Right, so people could post to the Medium blog, and then Free Code Camp was in an interaction with Medium, and they felt that Medium was behaving in a hostile manner. If uh, you know, I, I might be paraphrasing uh-huh. it. You know, people who want who want to see the verbatim discussions about this can find them. But basically, the people user generated content that people had submitted to the Free Code Camp Medium was migrated to a free code camp open source blog and then the people from dev commented on that and it was just a big discussion around what the rights of user generated content submitters are and and how that relates to open source software, how it relates to content production, how it relates to the monetization of companies like Medium. And mm-hmm. um, I don't really have a strong opinion on it. I just wanted, I was curious about your opinion because you're in the in the media landscape. I thought it was, it was quite an interesting deliberation, but, you know, maybe I should, I should just talk to the, the people involved or people who are more intimately familiar with it. Yeah, I don't know the specifics of this case, so I'm not going to even pretend to talk about it. Okay. Um, I did have a conversation with an attorney a few weeks ago, and essentially it's because I'm talking to a fairly large, well-known uh, development training company. I haven't finalized the details, so I'm not going to talk about who exactly they are. But um, anyway, we were we were working that out, right? Because if we're producing content for them... And the podcast is called, you know, the big company podcast. Oh. Right? And and but we're distributing it on devchat.tv, then who owns it? Mm-hmm. Right. Because it's branded with their stuff, but we're producing it. 
And so, you know, we went through this and, you know, we're actually putting together a legal agreement so that both of our interests are met. But at the same time, I talked to him about my hosts and I said, okay, you know, I've never really worried about this before, but who owns the content, right? Who owns the intellectual property? And essentially what he told me was that if the content was produced with my infrastructure, then I own it. You're right. So devchat.tv owns, legitimately owns, you know, there, there's enough court precedence hmm. to back up, you know, Meaning my claim like that I own Meaning like if you record it. it on your recording equipment. Yeah. Fascinating. And, right. So it's all been recorded on my Skype channels that I set up. It's all been recorded on my Zoom accounts that I set up. Uh, my team produced, you know, produced the episodes, edited them all down, you know, and so there's no dispute that we have the legal right to it. Now, that said, I'm still putting together an agreement that my hosts can agree to and the guests can agree to that says that we can use the content, you know, use the, and use their name and things to promote episodes that they're on. And so, you know, so it's kind of an interesting thing, right? Because most of the time, yeah, people do own the rights to their own likeness, their own voice, etc. And so it's just the nature of the way that this is put together that, you know, we've done things in a way that have covered us legally, mostly by accident. But uh, yeah, so that's one aspect of that. But then as far as free code camp goes, I mean, if you're, and, and this is where it gets a little bit interesting, right? Cause they moved all of the stuff off of medium and onto their own blog or whatever. Right. And so, you know, did free code camp own the rights to the, you know, that content? I don't know, but yeah, generally if you publish your content to somebody else's platform, then, you know, there's some implied consent to ownership or distribution, but I, I don't know where the line is all in all. I'm in favor of less restrictions on content. Yeah. And the reason is, is because the fewer restrictions there are, the more content people are willing to produce, right? So Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. And, and also, so, it's, so, it's, yeah. it's, it's, so one thing that perplexed me about it was, why not just mirror the content? Like, or maybe that's what they did. Maybe they just mirrored it. I, don't, I actually don't know the details. But, you know, so I, I write music. And, mm-hmm. you know, when I publish my music... I don't really care if, I mean, I know this is a luxury, but I don't care about making money out of it. I care about maximizing distribution. And the thing is, if your content reaches significant distribution and people actually want it, the money takes care of itself. That's, I mean, it might take a long game, but like, you probably know this, uh, at least this is is my experience. Mm -hmm. You do not win the content and the media game through nickels and dimes. You win it through building a long-term brand, building a long-term presence. It's not like one single... I mean, I remember in our last conversation, you talked about the the importance of the... uh, the episode you did with Brendan Eich. And like, yeah, some sometimes you have like a blog post that smashes through or, you know, you publish right. a book and that's really important. That's why people still get paid for books, mm-hmm. you know, but it's a war of inches. And so it's just like, I, I'm always for like, yeah, I want to cross post everything. You know, I want I want things on multiple channels. But anyway, that's, yeah, this is this is definitely a conversation I should, I should have with somebody uh, from one of these outlets. Yeah, and, and I would also, I, I would be really curious to just know sort of what the default position is on a lot of this stuff, you know, legally. But also, I mean, 
there's some, I hate to use the word moral, but there's some sort of, I guess, judgment of what's right and wrong to do with it. I mean, they, if they put it on free code camps, medium, they did essentially consent to free code camp distributing it, but you know, maybe that it didn't go, you know, having it on freecodecamp.com or .org slash blog or whatever it is, you know, maybe that's not exactly how they expected it to go out. So, you know, I I can kind of see both sides of this issue. Yeah. But ultimately, at the same time, I mean, if somebody publishes something to freecodecamp.org, Medium, and I'm just, I'm not trying to pick on them. I'm just using them as, a, as an example because it came up. And then the experience doesn't go exactly how they expected because FreeCodeCamp moved it over to their own website. It, it'd be really sad if they quit trying to blog or quit trying to produce content. And so I don't think that, anybody, that's where, nobody would ever do that. Nobody would ever say, oh, my, my content got moved. I'm going to quit blogging. Yeah, but it didn't get as much traffic because blah, 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 blah. Well, that's They're for not sure. willing to start their own blog and they just give up on guest posting, I guess is where I'm going, right? Then we miss out on, on any other content that they're willing to produce. And so, you know, I think that's an extreme example. But at the same time, you know, the fewer restrictions we put on people as far as what they can do with their own content, the more likely they are to produce content. All right. Well, we got to wrap up, but it's an interesting landscape, interesting media landscape. And uh, I feel like at the intersection of software engineering and media, there are a lot of questions that are, you know, on on uncharted territory. And it's, you know, it's funny. I bet you never thought would have thought yourself before you started this podcast that you would have been so curious about the legalese of uh, yeah. of like media. But yeah, I, I've gotten curious too. Because you, know, you start to build a business and you're like, geez, I kind of want to protect this business. I don't want to make some yeah. stupid mistake. And then you start to, yeah, you start to look into the legalese. So anyway. Um, yeah. That does actually lead to one more thing that's changed in the last three years. And that is, is that I am no longer freelancing in software. Oh, I, Congratulations. You know, I'm, I've been 100% on the podcast for the last two and a half, three years. So, yeah. That's great. Great to hear. Congratulations. Okay, well, Chuck, thanks for coming to the show and continued success. Good luck at the podcast. What is it? Podcast conference? Podcast? Podcast movement. Podcast movement, right. Okay. Yeah. I will go at some point. Yeah, good luck. And let me know how the product evolves. Sounds good. Let me just uh, kind of give a roundup of links real quick for people who are curious. So... The podcasting software is going to be at podwrench.com. Today, it is the beginning of June 2019, and I'm hoping to have a usable beta version out by the end of the month. And then you can go check out our, all of our shows at devchat.tv. And I've also written a book, so I'm just going to plug that as well. And that's at getacoderjob.com. I'm renaming it, so you'll probably be able to get it at whatever the new title is, which is going to be something like uh, Find Your Dream Developer Job. But yeah, that's basically what I've got going on these days. So definitely go check all that stuff out. And you can find me on Twitter and everywhere else that you're going to go look for that stuff. Awesome. Okay, Chuck, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Wow. 